If you haven't met before, I'm Pastor Trey. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We're still walking through that book together. We want to be a church that is driven by the Word of God. Amen. And this is not like the latest trend or something we want to talk about. It's we pick an Old Testament book, we walk through it. We pick a New Testament book and we walk through it together. And we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I do need to address the elephant in the room. I am wearing a Mavericks jersey despite all of my greatest efforts to not have to wear one of these. Y'all, I think uh, Ecclesiastes talks about not betting, at least it should, because I made a bet. And it's the first bet I've literally like made my entire life and I, and I lost, so I'll never do this again. Uh, but AJ sitting in the back over there, he sent me a text last week when we were tied up, the Suns and the Mavericks, two to two. And he said, hey, I got a deal for you. I said, bring it on, because at that point I was still confident in my Phoenix Suns. And uh, he said, hey, if the Suns win, I'll come up and do the scripture reading while wearing a Suns jersey, which is a big deal because he's a little bit shy. It would be harder for him to do. I said, done. He said, what if, if the Mavericks win? And I'm thinking it doesn't matter. The Mavericks won't win. So sure, bring it on. You have to wear a Mavericks jersey the next Sunday while you preach. And I thought, I'll never have to worry about that. Sounds good. Sign me up. I can't wait to see you read the scriptures in a Phoenix Suns jersey. And here we are today. He didn't read the Bible. And now I'm here in this Mavericks Luka Doncic jersey that's a size too small. So here we are. I'm wearing this jacket. There was not, I, it wasn't a part of the deal. It didn't have to just be the jersey. So I'm kind of winning with this. So don't let that be a, a distraction to you. The irony is today's passage, I mean, the, today's title is Dealing with Disappointment. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. And we laugh so that we don't cry. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3, it says, <laughs> this works perfectly. I'm glad I made this bet today. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. Okay, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. Not to make light of this, but we Phoenix Suns people, we're in a house of mourning, but the Bible says that means we're wise. No, this is even more serious than that, but pray for me. All right, the title of my message today is Dealing with Disappointment. Dealing with Disappointment. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight. God, I really ask, Lord, that as a church, we really lean into the summertime. It is a time, and I rejoice in the fact that some of us can go on vacations and spend time with family, and we celebrate that. We also celebrate the opportunity summer brings just to get closer to each other, uh, to learn with the workshops, to get involved in our marriage retreats, going to resorts and fellowships. And God, I just ask you that our people would lean in. And even tonight, God, we come to you. We're not gathering to declare how terrible our world is. We're, we're gathering to proclaim how good you are, God. And we're humbling ourselves saying, God, where where do I need to repent? Where do I need to churn? Where do I need to rejoice? How can I live a hope-filled life that is still attached to reality? And I just ask you, God, as we look at reality tonight in Ecclesiastes 7, I, I know the temptation is to think that this is a not a hope-filled message, but it actually certainly is. God, we're grateful that you face reality. In fact, Jesus, we celebrate that you face the ultimate reality of death and you conquered it. And we rejoice over that. And we just submit our hearts to you tonight. Have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. The church says, amen. Amen. Whenever I get tired of living by faith, I make my way to a sporting event. Because this is the beauty of being a fan. And I know the irony of wearing a Mavericks jersey right now. For a determined amount of time, we enter into a new reality. It becomes a world where violations are not tolerated, where the consequences are swift, 
We enter into a world where hard work is appreciated and even applauded. It's a world where there's unity across ethnic lines, religious lines, and socioeconomic lines. And when the game is over, the, beauty, the beautiful part of sports, everybody knows who won and everybody knows who lost. Sure, sports aren't a perfect world. Look at this. But it does enter you into a new reality where the world is a little bit more black and white. And I think we love it because it detaches us from how real life really is. When you get done with the game, when you go home, in real life, we are in a world where violations not only go unnoticed, they usually go unpunished. Sad to say, but a lot of people that commit good deeds every day that are living the good life that should be righteous and are sacrificing, they are overlooked and not celebrated enough. In the real life, we have tribal lines that are really silly. We, we divide because of the color of our skin or or we hang out with people determined by the size of their paycheck. And this is the hardest part of life for me. I can't tell when I'm winning or losing. It's always a mixture, isn't it? Usually it feels like we're losing, but then in perspective, when we have history behind us, we're like, wait, that was the good times. I was actually winning in that moment. What's hard is that life doesn't have a scoreboard. So we don't know how to get back into the game. We, we, we crave this new reality, so we go back to sports and we try to remember that, oh, there is still hope, that there, are, can, there can be a black and white, there is a winner and a loser, but life simply isn't that simple. And I want you to write this down. This is kind of a main theme of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, is even with God's anointing, your life will be disappointing. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be seasons of life, and we learned about that in Ecclesiastes 3. There are seasons, it actually acknowledges this in Ecclesiastes 7 today, where life is good, and you are winning, and you celebrate that. And too often, we can overlook the whole counsel of God's word and highlight those stories that are in here, where there is peace, where there is joy, where there is victory, and we can tend to ignore a huge chunk of the Bible, where even if you're following Jesus, Life is hard. Life is difficult. Families get divided. Pain enters the narrative. You can still get diseases. You can still lose your job. Life gets tough. And this is a difficult message, but those who are in a disappointing season right now actually find a whole lot of comfort from this because you know you're not alone, because you know this isn't, oh no, the preacher says that life should be good and mine is bad. This is a part of life. And this is why I really love Ecclesiastes. See, Jesus mentions... We can be choked out by the worries of this world. He mentions, don't be shocked by troubles. This is a part of life. John 16 says, here on earth, this is Jesus is speaking, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It's this weird paradox here where certainly you will have troubles. This will be sorrowful. You will be sad. But at the same time, ultimately, Jesus overcomes it. So it's this weird area where we know we're victorious, but in this moment, we feel the pain. We feel the loss. And so the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he thinks it's helpful for us to embrace heartache, to talk about tragedy, to not ignore it, but actually really sit under it and know that God is the one who's orchestrating this as well. And this brings up a lot of different questions people have, and this is confusing because the Bible you have to look at the whole thing, not just little verses, and this is a huge part of it. So starting in verse 13, chapter 7, it says, Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out 
what God has made crooked. This is a hard verse to understand. I, I can't lie. When I was reading it this week, I had to dig into some commentaries, dig into the Hebrew. What does this mean? Because in my understanding of words, crooked, what does that mean? Like morally wrong, right? Like you did something bad. My God, though, I know, is not an author of evil, so how can God be one who makes something crooked? Is God the one who makes something immoral? And so this is where the English language gets so difficult, but uh, here's what it means. Crooked, in this context, has nothing to do with being unrighteous or immoral. What it's talking about is tragedy. So it's not about morality. It's actually about tragedy. So in other words, consider the work of God who... For who can straighten out what God has made into a tragedy? He, in other words, allows this tragedy to come into your life. And the biggest frustration we get as Christians is, I want to fix this. I'm tired of this tragedy. Let me get it in my own hands. But you and I know the harder we try, the more miserable we are. Because he's saying, look, you cannot, if you're in a tragedy, you pray to God for him to take you out. Because ultimately... The power is not in your hands. If God puts you there, you're going to stay there until he deems it worthy to take you out. This is hard to preach. This is hard to understand. And so here's, let me give you, there are different ways we view God's involvement in our lives. In fact, if you go to seminary or Bible college, one of the first debates you ever have is Calvinism versus Arminianism. Anybody heard that before? Calvinists believe like you're saved before, you know, the foundations of the world. And so even like you don't even share, you, like the hyper-Calvinist is like, I don't even have to share the gospel to you because if you're saved, God's going to make it happen. You have an Arminian who's like, no, like God is, is kind of a little bit more passive. You have, it's really up to us to get out there and share the gospel. And it's just a never-ending argument. But let me simplify it. There are three ways we can view God in tragedy. One of them, I think, is biblical. The other one, the other two, lead to all sorts of really bad paths. Number one, you can view God as a passive God. Like God set the world into motion, and now it's up to us to do what we do. And so in a passive God, it's not the one who, he's not the one who made things crooked, but he's also not the one, he's just, he just made life work. Like he just started it, and if it's bad, it's because we made it bad. What this turns into is a self-help gospel where you go to the Bible and then you think, okay, everything's up to me. I got to work harder. There's no grace here. God's passive. He doesn't seem to care. I have to change. I have to do this, yada, yada, yada. Now, some of us, there's some stuff we have to change for sure, right? But it's an overreaction to say, God's not involved. I don't need to just say, God, I need your grace. Please help me in this situation. Sometimes we turn to a self-help gospel, which leads to all sorts of pain. And it leads to heartache, and it never actually gets you out. The second way we can view God is he's punitive. This is a big word. It means judgmental, or he's a punishing God. A punitive God means he's made things crooked because it's what you deserve. This is really big in a lot of religions. Where if your life is good, that's because you are a good person. If your life is bad, that means you're a bad person and God is making sure to punish you. Even Christian churches, we can fall into this narrative. And it's called a self-hate gospel where we gather every week to talk about how terrible we are. Now, are we terrible? (laughs) You know, pretty often. I had a church member make me wear a Dallas Mavericks jersey today, right? Just kidding, AJ. But at the same time, what is our hope? Our hope is not, look how terrible we are. Our hope is, look how good our God is. Amen? Look how God made a way when there was no way. There's always grace and love in the narrative. But when you don't believe 
in the gospel, you either turn to a passive God or a punitive God, and you're thinking he's the one making things crooked. But here we have the purgative God. What this means, and it's rich throughout history, we have a God who purges us. He gives us a storms of life, gives us tragedies, not because he doesn't love us, but the Hebrew says he disciplines those he loves. And so he allows us to go through these hard seasons because he's molding us into become a person of love. The people I know in life that are the meanest, they haven't suffered enough. The people who are so loving and compassionate and God uses to reach across the aisle and to bring people to Jesus, those people, they've suffered They've dealt with some chronic illnesses. They've dealt with some family pain. They've dealt with their own sin. And the beauty of it is God turns that into where we become a people of love. And we know, okay, ultimately God's in charge. My job is to love and say, okay, God, do what only you can do. Does that make sense? Let me add some clarity too. Technically, God is a punitive God if you never believe in Jesus you ultimately will be punished for your sin because that's the righteous thing to do. The good news, though, is if you believe in Jesus, we have a purgative God, meaning Jesus has cleansed us. The punishment is already on Jesus, and we receive his righteousness. Amen? So, okay. So, verse 13 again, it said, Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? A lot of us, we say, okay, if I could just take back the last five hours and make it right, then my life would be okay. For me, if I could just take back that bet that I made 10 days ago, then I'd be okay. Right? It's these random things, if I can just take back. But what we are called to do, we're accept, we are called to accept what is and trust that God will work it out for his children. So this conversation on sovereignty, it, it gets uncomfortable and it's hard to understand. But I think he presses it even further in verse 14. I think it'll be helpful for us. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. What is he saying here? He's saying, prosperity, there are days, going back to Ecclesiastes 3, in your life, and maybe this is you right now, you're having a good time, right? Uh, prosperity in the Hebrew, uh, some other words to use would be beautiful, Commentaries uh, say happy or cheerful or lovely. So in the day of lovely times, be joyful. He's saying don't be, don't be ashamed. If you are having a good time right now, praise the Lord for it. But also know, just as much as there's days of prosperity, there will be, this is just life in general, days of adversity. Some other synonyms for adversity here in the text is evil, distress, injury, misery, as your pastor, I know there's a lot of us, especially in light of everything that's happened, it's a lot of us are in the adversity season. And this is difficult because it's really hard to be somebody who is in a prosperous season and trying to encourage somebody in an adversity season and vice versa. It's really hard for us if we're in adversity, it's hard for us to be happy and encourage those who are prospering. But this is the call of the church. Paul says this later, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's what we're called to do. And it's very difficult. And let me just say one more thing with that. Day of prosperity and day of adversity, preaching gets difficult because you have to make sure you're preaching the gospel to those who are living life well and everything is healthy and great. At the same time, you need to encourage just as much those in adversity. And this is one reason why we just go through the Bible 
because the Bible just brings that up. There are times where you have to talk about the hard times of life, and there's other times in the scriptures you talk about the happy times. And when you come week in and week out, it gives you a steady diet of the gospel, gives you a steady diet of understanding God is in the prosperous season of your life as much as he's in the adversity season of your life. He's in both. For some reason, we find this so hard to fathom. Warren Wearsby, he's one of my favorite commentators, he put it this way in actually commentating on this verse. He says, why why does God do this? Why does God allow adversity, but then sometimes prosperity? He says, God balances our lives by giving us enough blessings to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. That's good, right? Some of us, you need to be happier. Enjoy the gifts that God's given you. Some of y'all, you need to be more humble, right? And so God knows this about you. His ultimate goal is to conform you into the image of his son. And so he's going to give you humbling times. And then he's going to give you happiness times. And it's this balance back and forth, back and forth that is called life. And for me, I'm just encouraged by it because it gives me context when I'm being humbled, when things are hard. God is sovereign. God's in control. I'm going to lean on him. Let's look at verse 15. In my feudal life, remember this word feudal means what? Hevel. In my hevel life, hevel is this word in the, in the Hebrew about fog or smoke and thinking, okay, hevel, this is real. This is what I need. But the moment you grab it, you can't ever see it. He's saying life is feudal. Life is vanity. Life is hevel. In my hevel life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. We see this on the news all the time, right? Great man gets killed because he was protecting other people, but he died at 25, right? Or a wicked man gets away with, he he got away with murder for 30 years, and he died of old age. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. I know in our church, we've had family members pass away way too soon. And when we start to think, we're like, this isn't fair. I know people, they don't deserve to live as long as you you start to do this. And what's happening is we put together this formula in our mind. We talked about this in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, but Proverbs gives you a bunch of formulas. Proverbs says A plus B equals C. And Ecclesiastes comes and says, yeah, but not always. Because the righteous person can do everything and yet die a young death. The wicked person does everything wrong and yet lives a prosperous life. What does that mean? This is something I thought was fascinating this week. So we've been referencing Hevel a lot, right? So interestingly enough, the name Abel, which is in Genesis 4, Abel is derived from the word Hevel. So stay with me. I learned that this week. That is so cool. There are four people on earth in the beginning of the creation account, right? Who is it? Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Genesis 4 is fascinating. Abel never speaks. We never, he's the one out of those four. We never see him communicating either to people or to God. But here's what we know. He's upright. He gave God what he deserved. He does everything right. He has the right sacrifices. We don't see any evil on his part. But we see evil in Adam. We see evil in Eve. And we see evil in Cain. What happens to Abel? He is the first person to prematurely die. He is the first person to be murdered. He was murdered by Cain, his brother. Meanwhile, when you read Genesis, what happens? Adam, Eve, and Cain, evil people, right? They made evil decisions. They live on 
They go on to live a full life. Cain has a family. There's a curse over him, but guess what? He still gets to live. And so understanding the biblical text, formulas don't always work. This formula of being right doesn't mean everything will be perfect this side of heaven. But it will be made right in heaven, amen? Eventually it will be right. But this is the encouragement I think the teacher's giving us here. And as a pastor that has to counsel people in struggle, this is one of the hardest reasons why tragedies hurt even more. Look, you need a father, not a formula. The reason some of us get so disappointed, because you thought, I followed the formula. I did this righteous thing and this righteous thing, which should lead to a very righteous thing, right? Instead, righteousness plus righteousness equals disease. Righteousness plus righteousness equals an untimely death. Righteousness plus righteousness equals family division. It's so difficult. The beauty of the gospel, a lot of other religions, they say, stick to the formula. If you're suffering, it means there's sin in your life you didn't know about. Stick to the formula. Work harder. Do better. The gospel message says, okay, stick to the Father. Because formulas on this side of earth, because of sin, because of the chaos of this life, formulas don't always work. But the Father is always there. And this is the difference we have to hold on to. So when I look at my life in the last three years, I am really blessed. When I look at the last 30 years of my life, I would say majority of it is blessing upon blessing, formulas working out to my benefit. In the last three years, I've had a lot of L's, as the kids would say, right? Some losses, okay? And, um, and so, so some, some L's, and, and I've been very open about it, and they hurt. And I think the biggest, one of the reasons why some of my failures have hurt so much is because I thought I followed the formula perfectly. For example, um, We've been open about this, but we've had a couple miscarriages. Uh, just last week, we cried over the loss of our son. It just like randomly comes up, just random out of nowhere. It was actually at a wedding, so that kind of makes sense, thinking about like a mother-son dance, and it just hit us. And something that we asked a lot in the beginning was, what did we do wrong? You guys ever have that? Some tragedy happens in your life, and you think, okay, what is God punishing me for? And... I should say as a pastor, I immediately said that is the improper question. But no, I kept entertaining that question. But eventually I thought, wait a minute. In Christ, I'm the righteousness of God. God doesn't punish me. I, I am covered by the blood of Jesus. This is not because of that. And so the formula would tell me I did something wrong, and so now I'm punished. But the Father would say this life is chaotic evil things happen, but I'm there for you and I love you and there's a purpose at the end of it all. That's not only that. I mean, I can just go on and on like one big one right before the COVID pandemic. We almost had a church building and we literally lost it like the last second. I'm really grateful now because I think the way it was all set up, it wouldn't have been best for us. But at that moment, I was on my way to the bank to, to sign the deal and then they never showed up. And then I find out 24 hours later they gave it to another church without giving us an opportunity to, to you know, do a counter offer. That hurt. And I kept thinking the formula, God, we've done this church plant the right way. We didn't cut corners. We were trying to preach the truth. The reason we want a building is not for our egos, but to bless the city. Like all these questions, God, 
What did I do wrong? And when we have the formula, we can begin to think, I did something wrong. But when we have a father, we know he cares for us and he's going to love us. I'm just grateful. The gospel of Jesus that we have in the scriptures does not make us lean even harder into the formula. What it does is it beckons us. It calls us to lean into the father who loves us and is going to take care of us. Now, verse 16 and 17, let's go quickly. He says, don't be This is a really interesting scripture. Don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Verse 17, don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? This is like the ultimate verse to say like, just be kind of average, you know? Like don't be overly righteous, like that'll kill you. Don't be overly wicked, like you're gonna die early. Okay, cool. I'm going to be average. What is this? I've had to wrestle with this a lot. Excessively righteous. It really talks about this idea where nothing's ever good enough. You're trying to do so much and you're trying to prove yourself and you're stressed out because although you gave to one charity, you're now guilty because there's 99 other charities you couldn't give to, right? You're focused on Honduras and now you feel guilty because what about Malaysia now, right? This overly excessive in righteousness, you kill yourself because you just never stop trying to prove. You never stop trying to save the world, the thing that only God can do. And I think self uh, excessively wicked makes a little bit more sense to us, right? And actually, I think the message translation is really helpful here. This is a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. He says, don't knock yourself out being good and don't go overboard being wise. Believe me, you won't get anything out of it. <laughs> but don't press your luck by being bad either. And don't be reckless. Why die needlessly. Let me cut straight to the point. Write this down. Here's what he's encouraging us. Stay far from self-promotion and self-pity. What do I mean? The self-righteous, the overly righteous. Why are they overly righteous? They're trying to promote themselves by saying, God, I am sticking to the formula. You better bless my life. God, I am overly righteous. I read my Bible every day this week. You better give me that raise. Right? It, it begins to, to make the father, father follow a formula which never works. And so you're doing it not because you love the Father, but because you love the hookups that your Father can give if he sticks to the formula. So don't self-promote yourself. Don't be overly righteous. Don't think that you have tricked God where he has to bless you a certain way because of how good you are. But also don't run to self-pity. Here's a huge overreaction, and I see this all the time. When a tragedy hits your life, and you've been good up to that point, what's the temptation? What's the point? Why be good and bad stuff still happens? So I'm going to be bad, and then I won't be shocked if bad things happen, but at least I'm having fun along the way. This is a legitimate thought process a lot of us believe. And he's saying, don't do that either. That's going to lead to a shorter death. Like it's going to, that, it looks like it's better to pity yourself and just do whatever you want, but that makes your life even harder. You need a father, not a formula. Verse 18. It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand. This is all really confusing language, but zero in on this last. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. The message paraphrase helps a little bit here again. It's best to stay in touch with both sides of an issue. A person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. We deal responsibly with the reality God has given us. 
And even if I'm sticking to the formula and doing all the right things, if all the bad things are still happening to me, I'm still sticking to reality that God's in control. God's called me to be right and righteous, and I'm going to do it regardless of the results. Write this down. God doesn't owe you. God owns you. That's his takeaway. Don't be good in order to say, okay, God, you owe me good times because I've been good. He goes, no, 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 you need to have greater fear than that. Do good because God is God and you are not. And he is, honor, he is worthy of that and he owns us and he's in charge. And so Christians, we're called to be responsible with the reality we've been given. In other words, outcomes are none of our business. We trust that the Father will make all things new. We trust that he's gonna work this out in the end. And the beauty of the gospel, we need to always bring it back to the gospel, is we can trust in the Father because he sent his only son to take on the ultimate suffering. The ultimate, man, if anybody deserved to not die and get crucified, it was Jesus, and yet he did it in our place. The scriptures say over and over, Jesus became sin so that you and I may become righteous. The scriptures say over and over, Jesus suffered so that you and I wouldn't have to suffer for eternity. The scriptures talk about how Jesus took the tree of death so that you and I could have the tree of life. And so here's what I want to do. I was talking to my mentor, one of my mentors from yesteryear, and gave him a random call, and he was talking about some disappointments he's going on in his life, and I talked about some of mine, because this is the reality of life, and I was telling him, I said, ever since I've read uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, I've just kind of, hevel, hevel, everything's hevel, you know, I've just been that guy, and so we were kind of relating to that, and something he did, there was a few practices he did that were really encouraging to me. And I want this to be a time of encouragement to those who are dealing with disappointment right now. Disappointment with your family, with your addictions, your behaviors, the losses you've experienced, where just the formula hasn't been working. He gave me two things that really touched my heart. He said, Trey, the first one, and I'm not going to give out his name because I didn't ask him if I could or not, but his wisdom was helpful here. He's been through so much. He said, Trey, what I had to do was I took a sheet of paper and I wrote down all my disappointments, everything, all the times where I thought I did the right formula and yet it failed me. Wrote it down. He said he had over a hundred disappointments you can think of in the last two years. Wrote them down. For him, what he had to do, he had to go in his backyard, dig a hole, crumple up that piece of paper put it in the hole, light it on fire. I was like, did you shoot it with a paintball gun next? Like, what are you doing, right? Lit it on fire, put the dirt back. He said, what I had to do was say, God, this is yours. I'm disappointed, but I'm still your son. And so I'm not gonna let those disappointments direct my life. I have buried them. I'm gonna trust that you're gonna take care of me and take care of me alone. And I thought that was a, great practice, and I encourage you to participate in that. But one more thing he did, and this is how I'd love for us to close, is he said, Trey, have you ever prayed the serenity prayer? I'm a little bit familiar. I know that uh, Celebrate Recovery does this, but a lot of us don't know the full prayer. And so I think we're going to post it on Instagram later this week so you can kind of snapshot it. But here's this prayer I encourage you to pray. I've been praying this prayer from my own heart and soul the last week and a half since we talked. It's been incredible what it's done for me. Here's what he says. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage 
to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. This is where most of us stop. The rest is so good though. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, enjoy the food, enjoy the family. I know life is hard, but find those moments of gratitude. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. That's Ecclesiastes 7 right here. Fear God. At the end of it all, he will care for you. Why? So that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Friends, this is what we're called to do. We're not called just to get a rally together. All right, God is God. I am not. Times are tough. It's got to get better. Friends, we need to hold on to prayer as a lifeline. I know what I need. I need something like this to read every day and say, God, this is a day of adversity, but I will choose to rejoice in it because who can make straight what you made crooked? And for some reason, you've allowed this to be crooked for a purpose, for a reason, and I'm going to submit my will to you, God. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to believe the best in what you have for me, God. And at the end of the day, I just want to be reasonably happy here, but I long to be supremely happy with you for eternity. 